Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. A big story that happened this week that you're going to be hearing a lot more about in the coming months. Executions are set to resume. The Department of Justice has announced that it will resume capital punishment for the first time in nearly two decades. Unlike many states that were having issues with a three-drug protocol, federal authorities will use a single drug, pentobarbital. Five death row inmates have scheduled executions starting at the end of this year, three in December and two at the beginning of January 2020. For more on this story, we spoke to Jacqueline Thompson, reporter at The Hill. So the attorney general said that um, he has directed the Bureau of Prisons to enact this new protocol that will allow them to start carrying out federal executions um, in death penalty cases. Like you mentioned, they haven't done it for decades and that the last time around, um, they used this three-drug system in order to do the executions, which is through lethal injections. But once the government wasn't able to get one of the drugs involved, they stopped doing those executions. And, um, you know, it really fell out of practice over the past 16 years. Now it looks like they've revitalized it. They went through a process where they reviewed it through in, um, within the Justice Department. And now they've determined that they're going to start using this new one-drug process that involves, you know, just the administration of a single drug, pentobarbital. It's very interesting. So for a long time, this three-drug protocol was hampering a lot of executions uh, at the state level. Um, But obviously, since we hadn't been doing this on the federal level, it it wasn't much of an issue. Why has it been so long since there has been a federal execution? Well, I believe it's the number of issues that, you know, we see a general shift in um, views surrounding the death penalty, the population in general just doesn't seem to be as big of a fan as it was in the past. And frankly, the U.S. is an outlier in the world in terms of using the death penalty. Uh, Most countries that are like the U.S., some developed nations that are democracies, they don't use the death penalty and they outlawed it years ago. Um, So it's something that's kind of fallen out of practice. And then also just the fact that it ended up not being able to get one of the drugs used in the three drug protocols you mentioned earlier. It's an interesting time. Uh, The death row population has declined for the 17th straight year uh, in 2017, which is the latest data that we have. And the duration from sentence to execution has increased to 20 years and three months. That is a long time that people are waiting on death row. You know, states across the country all have a bunch of different uh, rules for it. Uh, Colorado, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and California most recently issued moratoriums on this. So, you know, they're not doing it also. There's also a lot of inmate rights groups and civil rights groups that are opposed to this. Uh, They say it disproportionately affects African-Americans. And while that may be true, these individuals that are being targeted for execution, uh, there's five of them that are, as I said, coming up at the end of the year, beginning of next year. These are some pretty bad guys. Can you tell us a little bit about these five men that are being put up for execution? Yeah, um, you know, each of these five men, they've been convicted for the murders of children and elderly people. Um, You know, each of these men, they've gone through the appeals process. They've tried to get their convictions overturned and they've run out of appeals. They've run out of options. Um, They were frankly, they're going to spend the rest of their life on death row unless something dramatic happened, um, like being exonerated by DNA evidence and getting a case reopened, 
or they were going to ultimately be executed as they are scheduled to be in this case. Attorneys for at least one of the men, Daniel Lee, have already spoken out and said, we have major concerns about the way this case was litigated. We have really major concerns about the DNA evidence that was used um, in order to secure this conviction. And we don't believe that this should move forward. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out with each of these specific cases. Yeah, You know, what's also interesting is the fact that each of these are murders, and it doesn't necessarily seem to be a federal crime um, at hand here. And that's something that somebody mentioned to me earlier today, um, you know, that each of these offenses, while they are, you know, horrible crimes, they don't necessarily involve federal authorities or federal issues. So it's a little curious to see that it being invoked by the Justice Department at this point. Do you know how it rises to, to that? They are very heinous crimes. And you mentioned Daniel Lee, he was a member of a white supremacist group. He murdered a family of three, including an eight-year-old girl. He covered their heads with plastic bags and and, and then threw them into the Illinois Bayou. I mean, this is pretty bad stuff. But how is it the severity of the crime that raises it to the federal level? Well, you know, it was all all of these convictions seem to be secured through district courts, which are federal courts. So that does open the door for the Justice Department to make it a federal death penalty case. Um, you know, we saw that with the Sarnov brother in the Massachusetts Boston Marathon bombing. Massachusetts doesn't have the death penalty, but they wanted to pursue the death penalty as a conviction for him. So they made it a federal crime. Is there any indication that some of these can be blocked or petitioned? I know that they've exhausted their appeals. That's why they're being put up for execution. So maybe not on an individual basis, but I think there's definitely an opportunity to challenge this new policy or protocol as a whole. A lot of groups have indicated that they're looking to challenge it in some sort of way, whether it's through the courts or undergoing some sort of other process. A lot of people have raised concerns about the way this protocol was adopted in the first place. They're saying that it was actually required under a federal administrative law to go through what's known as a common and notice period that allows other groups to weigh in on this policy. But that didn't happen in this case. So there's very much a chance that we could see lawsuits filed surrounding that aspect of this being adopted. They're scheduled for December 9th, December 11th, December 13th, 2019, and then January 13th and January 15th, 2020. So they're all in very close proximity to each other. So it's going to be very interesting to see how these develop. Jacqueline Thompson, court reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. Recently in the news, we also had another first for investigative genealogy. It's been used to help solve cold cases involving suspected killers and rapists, but now it has been used for the first time to exonerate a man. Christopher Tapp has been exonerated for the rape and murder of Angie Dodge in 1997. Experts now say that this technique could be used to clear up others who have been wrongly convicted. We spoke to Sal Hernandez, he's a reporter at BuzzFeed News, for more on this first for investigative genealogy. Christopher Tapp, he he confessed to the crime back in 1997. And, you know, the backstory is that, um, you know, police that the police department in uh, Idaho Falls, that they pushed them to give them um, what was was essentially a bad confession, a coerced confession, because they were actually trying to get to a friend of Christopher Tapp. But when the DNA came back and it didn't match uh, Tapp's friend, they focused on Tap himself because he had the confession. That's what took him to trial. That's what got him convicted. And years later, Tap continued to to claim his innocence. And one of the biggest things that would stand out to um, attorneys at the Innocence Project, there was 
no DNA from the crime scene that matched Tap, and there were uh, there were semen samples and a pubic hair uh, that was tested that provided no matches to law enforcement. And I have to add, it didn't match any of the other suspects that law enforcement had been looking at. Right. So here was this DNA sample that nobody knew where it came from, and this man had been spending 20 years in prison for it. And one thing in particular, you mentioned, you know, his DNA didn't match anything there at the scene. The working theory was that he was uh, one among a few people that were involved that day in, in the rape and death of Angie Dodge. So they always thought there was other suspects, although they never had anybody. And one person that was instrumental in really saying, hey, let's try this genetic genealogy pathway was Dodge's mother herself. She always, she never gave up. She, you know, they, if they said there was other people involved, she wanted to find out. So she helped push for this to be done. Right. And that was one thing that, you know, police and folks at the Innocence Project actually pointed out that, you know, here was the victim's mother who, after several years and after looking at everything, she became convinced that Christopher Tapp was not involved with the murder. So she became an advocate for him. She pushed for law enforcement to to keep looking at the case. She reached out to the Innocence Project to pick it up and, and, and to and to investigate it. Yeah. And I think that DNA sample was only about 61% of the information that analysts typically need. But from that, they were able to do the work and they led, they got led to a new suspect named Brian Lee Drips Sr. He lived across the street from Angie Dodge in 1996. And so at that point, he fits the profile. And then this is my favorite part always because this is just an investigative tool, this genetic genealogy. The detectives still have to do the footwork after. So they followed Drips. And he threw a cigarette butt out of his car window. They picked that up, and that matched the DNA at the scene. Uh, both semen and hair left at the scene. So they were able to find his guy. They talked to him, and he admitted his involvement. You know, he is getting charged now, and they had already previously exonerated the rape because DNA evidence wasn't adding up. But this last piece was they exonerated him from the murder charge. It's such a crazy story, and I couldn't imagine being in jail for so long for a crime you didn't commit. Here's a little clip of Christopher Tapp after he was exonerated, talking about how he felt when he was in prison and holding on to hope. Did you ever lose your belief that you would be freed? Some days you do. Some days you have to accept the reality of this might have been the end for me, is sitting in prison for a crime I never committed. And then there's other days where the rest of my team lost their own faith and their belief, and I was the one holding them. That's going to be okay. We got the next hearing. We'll we'll get them on the next round. Today is that day where I can look at them and tell them there will be no more hearings. That a judge and a state gave me the actual innocence, which I truly, rightfully deserved. Tell us a little bit about your conversation with CeCe Moore. She's their lead genealogist at Parabound Nano Labs. And there, that company, they've already, I mean, they've already found about 50 suspects uh, accused of uh, rape or murder, you know, through this DNA genealogy. What is her thought process behind this whole thing? I know she says this is one of the most fulfilling victories she's had so far. Right. She said that, you know, I think she described as pure joy, right? Because um, I believe that this was uh, Parabon's um, 56th case that they have used investigative genealogy to identify either a victim or a, or a suspect, more suspects than anything. Um, so they've been in the game for, for, for quite a while now. Um, but for CC, she was saying that, you know, this was 
one of the most difficult DNA samples that she has been able to work on and actually get a successful result out of, meaning, you know, she identified somebody. Um, so that was very encouraging and that was actually something that was very fulfilling because the sample was only 61%. Um, it was very degraded. And not only that, but when she ran it through the GEDmatch database, she got a very distant match. So um, she mentions that she grades, usually grades cases from a one to five, and um, five being the worst, and she usually does not take any five cases because it usually won't yield a good result and it, and it just doesn't take up the time, right? Uh, this was a five, but it was at the urging of, you know, Dodge's mom that she decided to go ahead and do it, push through, and and she got a break. You know, it was a very difficult case because the substance of the, of the DNA sample, but drips he was actually carrying the surname of his stepfather so it was a little bit more difficult to actually find because the genealogy had led her to a couple who had six kids well she found out that there had been a seventh that had been a result of the marriage this was drips but she was able to eventually link it up to to this man at this at that point sal hernandez reporter for buzzfeed news thank you very much for joining us thanks austria One of the craziest stories that caught my eye this past week, just for the curiosity of it, who would steal a bald eagle? Sammy, the one-winged bald eagle, has been birdnapped. The 35-year-old bald eagle has been living a good life at the Quag Wildlife Refuge on Long Island since 1988, when he was shot and had to get his right wing amputated. Now, someone has broken into the cage and taken him, cutting through two layers of cages. We spoke to Marisa Nelson. She's the assistant director of the Quag Wildlife Refuge for more so she can share Sammy's story and call for his return. So this happened last Tuesday. Last Tuesday morning, we discovered he was not in his enclosure. The cage was cut through. And so that was extremely upsetting to find out that someone broke in and stole Sam, the bald eagle. Now, you guys have surveillance footage of this. So somebody broke in between 2.15 and 4.15 in the morning. Um, is there security around the refuge? We don't know where the bird is exactly, either wrapped up in a blanket or a bag or something, but he's walking away pretty calmly. He was, and that was quite disturbing that he seemed quite comfortable and confident there. Um, my husband and myself live on the refuge property and so unfortunately didn't hear anything. And we have the cameras up that did detect him, uh, you know, coming and going. And so that is wow. you know, assisting in, in some of the investigation. Now, bald eagle is uh, quite a large animal. They're very strong. They have sharp talons. I mean, how easy is it to kind of subdue one, to grab one from an enclosure? First, he's, he had to cut through two sets of fences to get in. I don't know if the bird would be startled by somebody kind of coming into his enclosure. How do you subdue a bird like this? Well, I'm not sure exactly what happened. I don't know if the bird was tranquilized. He's not a handleable bird. You know, there are some birds of prey that are used to being handled, and on a falconry glove, he certainly is not one that we handled. He did not like being very close to people. So I do not know exactly what happened. Marisa, you've been working and handling Sammy since 2003. Tell us a little bit about him. What does he eat? What does he do during throughout the day? And and also tell us about his uh, his wing because he only has one wing. It had to be the other one had to be amputated. 
Right. So, so he the, at the Quag Wildlife Refuge, we house permanently injured wildlife. So, in in the outdoor enclosures. So, for instance, um, Sam the Baldy moved in here in 1988 because he needed uh, permanent housing because he had sustained a gunshot from he was out in a western state somewhere was shot, had to have his wing amputated, and then they found housing for him because he was a non-releasable bird because he's not flighted. Um, so that's his background story. And then once he's been here, he's lived happily in his enclosure, gets around really well with climbing and, and using his very strong feet and hopping around. You know, while he's in the cage, he has a, a big bird bath that he likes to bathe in. He does interact with all the visitors that come. He's very chatty, as you can um, see from the video that's on our Facebook and website and, you know, his lifestyle as a bird of prey, they are meat eaters, so we would feed him, you know, dead rodents and sometimes fresh fish. A lot of local fishermen and women would bring us some local fish for him to eat. So that was pretty much his diet, of course, included some vitamins on his food. But he was healthy since he's been here. He hasn't needed to see a vet or anything, so he was a pretty strong, healthy bird, minus his disability of having just one wing it is a federal crime to possess a bald eagle without a permit. Uh, I've read that it's even illegal to possess a single bald eagle feather. Um, you know, I mean, obviously we don't know, but if you can speculate, what purpose would somebody want to take this bald eagle? We can only speculate. We don't know who did it, so then we don't know why they did it. I mean, if the sad thought is potentially they wanted him for his feathers, which is there is a black market for um, bald eagle and golden eagle feathers, which is, you know, is a very sad thought. So it's being investigated thoroughly right now. There's uh, a variety of law enforcement agencies working on this because this is being taken very seriously because it is a federal crime right. considered grand larceny at this time. And it's been over a week now. Uh, you know, there is a $15,000 reward for anything that, you know, for any information and leading that could possibly lead to an arrest. Um, what have police been saying about this so far? They're, they haven't really come up with anything just yet. Well, nothing that is uh, that we're sharing or reporting on at this time. So the, uh, the, the re- reward is being provided by both Nassau and Suffolk County SPCAs, as well as our local Crime Stoppers. So we're hoping that even though the, of course, the priority is to get Sam the bald eagle back here safely, that the $15,000 reward will lead to um, finding the perpetrator. I I read in one of the stories that you guys don't necessarily even want to press charges. You just want Sam back alive and and you drop him off there or at a local vet or something. It's, you know, you just want him back unharmed. That's the priority is to um, drop him somewhere safely. You can call in anonymously to Crime Stoppers or to somewhere anonymously and let us know where he is. Everyone knows that this bird is being looked for. And so that is certainly the priority is his well-being. Yeah. I mean, he's a beautiful bird. I've seen the videos. He, He looks like he's got a great personality and interacts well with the community there who've you know known him now for many, mm-hmm. many years. So best of luck. I hope somebody delivers the tip that leads us to him or somebody turns him back in. Marisa Nelson, Assistant Director at the Quag Wildlife Refuge, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs>